That brings us to the Greek Empire. Now, the Greek Empire was probably one of the greatest empires, culturally speaking, up to this point. And I'm not saying that the Greek Empire was a much better culture or a bigger culture in any kind of a way compared to anybody else, because I don't think that's measurable in any kind of a way. But that their culture was so dominant and so influential in changing everybody else's culture to match their culture. Um, that's what made the Greek Empire so successful. They, they, Alexander III was unique in his ability to conquer the Western and Eastern worlds on both sides of the Mediterranean Sea that nobody had ever done before. And then he basically took the Greek culture and kind of stamped it on everybody. And everybody kind of took the Greek culture upon themselves and their identity and worldview, either completely or at least partially in some way. And this is what we call Hellenism. And Hellenism is the Hellenization of the cultures. We're basically making everybody Greek. Greek in the way they view the world, Greek in the way that they think about the gods and the culture, and Greek in the way that they speak. And you and I have all been Hellenized. We are very thoroughly Greek in the way that we do culture. Our government, our education, our entertainment, our sports, competition, all of that is Greek and the way that they do things. And our obsession with image and body and all that kind of stuff, that is very Greek. And we'll talk about that a little bit later when we actually get to Hellenization. So the Persian empires had some very dominant, powerful kings after Cyrus II, Xerxes, Xerxes, Darius. So in 513 BC, the Persian king Darius I crossed the Hellespont Strait into Europe and invaded the divided city-states of Thrace, Macedonia, Greece, subordinating them under its rule. The Greek city-states would rebel against Persia and the war among themselves for the next two centuries. Now, what is the Hellespont Strait? The Hellespont Strait, if you're familiar with the Mediterranean Sea, if you know where like Istanbul, which used to be Constantinople, which used to be Byzantine, where that city is, there's two little fingers, one finger coming off of what we know as modern-day Turkey today, and there's another finger coming off of what we know as Greece, and they're just barely touching each other. And that strait is this teeny little strip of water, if you can call water a strip, a little strip of water, which is called a strait, that flows between what we know as modern-day Europe, East and Western Europe, and what we know as modern-day the Middle East, Turkey, and so speak. And this is the, 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 the smallest part of water that divides these two land masses. Everywhere else, you have to cross the giant Mediterranean, or you have to move across the entire north part of Africa, and then you have to cross another strait or another gap of water in order to get into Spain. So this is the easiest place for you to cross if you do not have a navy or ships of any kind of way in a massive sense. And so nobody had really crossed this in a military conquering way. There had been trade across the Mediterranean from what we know as West Eastern Europe to the Middle East. And people had migrated over, the Greeks had migrated over during the 1200s BC, known as the Sea Peoples, and then intermixed with the Canaanites and became known as what we know as the Philistines. So there had been migration and trade and that kind of stuff, but there never had been a kingdom or an empire that had bridged from the Eastern world to the Western world, or vice versa, 
and actually controlled both of these parts of the world with their political empire or government that had never been done before. So the Persian Empire had become big enough and had secured Anatolia or Asia Minor or what we know as modern-day Turkey. It had secured it so thoroughly that Darius I began to venture out in a way that nobody had ever done before. I'm going to conquer both sides of the Mediterranean world and I'm going to rule over both sides of the Mediterranean world. So he begins to do this. Now this became relatively easy because where the Persian Empire was united under one king, what we know today as Greece, and which is also known as Macedonia um, and Thrace at that time period, and this is where you kind of get um, Hungary and um, Ukraine, they're all in that area. They were all divided into these tiny little city-states, and they couldn't get along with each other. We, we know about the war between the Spartans and Athens and Macedonia and all that kind of stuff. And so they were warring with each other. So the Persians seized this vulnerability in them. However, the Greeks were also very skilled. They were, even though they were city-states, and any empire that's conquering anybody else always refers to everybody else as a barbarian. Hey, barbarians are these backwards, uncivilized people, and we need to protect ourselves from barbarians. But the Greeks, in a lot of ways, were very civilized. They had an incredibly good structured culture they had. I mean, they were the ones who invented the Olympics, and they were the ones who were doing all this art that was emphasizing the human body, and they had an incredibly developed state of government and education and this kind of stuff. And so they weren't these backwards people, as you might think of say, states warring against each other, but they weren't unified. But they were very determined, and they had the very high pride of themselves because one of the things that made the Greeks different from other people is they emphasized the individual. There was a man by the name of Protagoras who was a philosopher who coined the phrase that man is the measure of all things. And the Greeks were beginning to move away from the idea of the gods being the only thing and that humans actually can maybe become their own gods or they could become more dominant and powerful if they just put their mind to it. And so the Greeks kind of had this individuality superiority complex. And I don't mean every single Greek, but the intelligentia, the elite, the warriors, that kind of stuff. And so they were determined not to be defeated or destroyed in any kind of way. For the next two centuries, there was lots of warring among the Greeks and warring with the Persians. And the only time they kind of stopped fighting each other is when Persia got close and they had to drive them back. And so there's all these things happening during this time period. This led to a very famous battle between Athens and Sparta known as the Peloponnesian Wars. And this was a time period where basically the Persians were overwhelming the Greeks and the Greeks were trying to stand against them. And you probably the famous story of the Spartans and 300 warriors against Xerxes. And, and they think they're so determined that we can do it, we can stop them, and they just get smashed and clobbered. Well, the Spartans were known as the greatest warriors. And this defeat of Sparta kind of woke up all of Greece to the idea that maybe we should start uniting together because our way of life is going to be, come to an end if Persia is not stopped. And so they, be, they still warred against each other. And at this time period, there was a man by the name of King Philip II. Now, King Philip II ruled over Macedonia. And King Philip II made a name for himself during the Peloponnesian Wars. 
And he was a great general, a great king, a great strategist. And he basically began to dominate all the city-states, the Greek city-states. He began to conquer them one by one by one. And he was doing this to unite them all under his rule so that they could stand against the Persians. And so as he got bigger and bigger by conquering more and more city-states and bringing them under his control, he also had a greater and greater force to oppose the Persians. And the opposition to the Persians were getting greater and greater as his empire became more and more. And so Macedonia became a kingdom that became more and more prominent and, and powerful. Now, King Philip II had a son by the name of Alexander III. And this is who we know as Alexander the Great. And Alexander III was actually tutored by Aristotle. So remember, Socrates was the teacher of Plato, and then Plato became the teacher of Aristotle, and then King Philip II had the ability to bring Aristotle into his home and actually personally tutor his son Alexander III. <clears throat> now, Aristotle very much believed that the Greek culture was superior to all other cultures, and the only way to really help the world was to make the entire world think and act and worship like Greeks. So when you're being raised by Aristotle, Alexander III is being raised by Aristotle to think like that, and your father is one of the greatest military generals and military strategists of his time period who's conquering all the city-states and teaching you how to do that, you're going to have a very arrogant, very capable man who's going to go out and want to conquer the world and make the world Greek. And so this is what's going to end up producing Alexander III. So Philip II ends up dying, and his empire is taken over by Alexander III. And he picked up the fight against the Persian Empire. So he now has united all of Greece together under his rule. And so it's the Macedonian kingdom. We often think of this as might be the Greek kingdom. But it is the Greek empire that Alexander III is going to be building. But it, he starts out in the Macedonian kingdom. And he's united Thrace and Macedonia and Sparta and parts of these together. <clears throat> so he decides to do the same thing that Darius I had done, but in reverse order. So in 334 BC, he crosses the Hellespont Strait going the other way into Asia. And as he goes into Asia Minor... He is unstoppable. Alexander the Great conquered people more swiftly, more uncontested, more devastating than any other empire had ever come before him. And he basically just moved like a tidal wave across the world in a swift way. And remember, he is the four-headed, four-winged leopard of the, the, the Daniel's visions. So he begins to sweep across now, what he begins to do is he begins to move through Anatolia, or Asia Minor, which we know as modern-day Turkey, and he basically bounced up and down as he went across this section of land, conquering Persian fort after Persian fort after Persian fort. Now, he faced off with Darius in the beginning, but Darius constantly just kept running away. He was no match for Alexander III. So anytime he got the sense that he was going to lose a fort, he just abandoned it and ran, because he's more interested in preserving himself and understandably speaking. So Alexander the Great began to conquer. He then began to move southward. Once he got across the Mediterranean top, he moved southward and he started coming down the Mediterranean coast on the west side, which, we, which is called Syria. 
Syria is that northern part where the Tigris and Euphrates River start going to Asia Minor. And then he starts moving down the coast towards Israel and then through the Sinai Peninsula into Egypt. So because he has to control the Mediterranean Sea, he knows that if he doesn't control the Mediterranean Sea and all the major ports on the west eastern side of the Mediterranean are along Israel's coast, then he will not be able to get supplies very well through ships. Right now he's doing it all by foot. So now his cavalry and his soldiers are forced to be reckoned with. They're in the hundreds of thousands of people. And he begins to move down. Now one of the cities that he has to conquer is the city of Tyre. Now Tyre is a city in Phoenicia. It's this little city right on the coast of the Phoenicia or the, the Mediterranean Sea. But about a kilometer off the coast, there's an island, an island that Tyre also controls. Tyre was the most powerful, imposing political military city in that region of the world at that time. And he knew he had to control them because their navy was good. They're, they're, they, they controlled the Mediterranean Sea in a lot of ways in that part. And he wanted to bring trade over. And he didn't really have a superior navy yet. So he had to conquer Tyre. But the problem is Tyre is a kilometer off the coast. Now, in most parts, the, the water is only about six feet deep. And as you get closer to the island, it gets deeper and deeper and deeper. But you can't bring catapults and soldiers through six-feet water with bows and arrows and successfully attack a city that has walls that are 150 feet tall. So there, there was no way he could take it. So he actually took his men, and he actually began to tell them to shovel dirt from the coast into the water. And he built this land bridge from the coast to that. Now, you can imagine, like... You know, in the military and boot camp, they just have you shovel dirt from one place to another place to kind of get you training and break you down and help you follow orders and build your muscles up. But you're shoveling dirt into water that is six feet deep and has to be wide enough to, to move carts across it. And it's a kilometer long and it gets deeper as you get closer out and you're just shoveling this dirt out. And that's what you do. And so he, they started doing this. And this shows you his determination. So when he's actually connected to the island, he began to move these war machines, these siege engines. And they were wooden, but they were covered in rawhide so that they wouldn't catch on fire from flaming arrows. And he built catapults and trebuchets and ballistas into it. Ballistas are just giant torpedoes that, well, you think of torpedoes like Star Trek Next Generation or U-boats. But torpedoes is just a projectile stick that goes through the air. So swords, spears, javelins, that kind of stuff. So they fired this thing. Now, when he got closer and closer and closer, he was devastating them. And they, in desperation, they basically got a ship and they weighed it really low on the back so that the front of the ship would face upwards so it would be harder to, to sink it. And then they filled it with all the sulfur, and they lit on fire and sent it against his land bridge, burning everything down. So then he realized that he couldn't do that, and he realized there was no hope now. So he then began to realize that now he had conquered enough people that he could take their ships away from them. So he started gathering all these ships from people and had 223 ships by the end of it, and he started launching attacks against Tyre. But Tyre was ready for that. He, he burned the ships into battling, battle rams, and he sent them up against the wall, and he anchored them to the wall so he could row them back and forth against the walls of the city. 
Now, the tire had been jumped off the wall into the water to cut the ropes underneath the water, so he then replaced them with chains, and eventually, over time, he battered through the walls with just like, like shooting a brick wall with a BB gun. Eventually, he brought it down, and when he brought it down, he invaded the city and conquered and took it. Now, I tell you all this. I'm not going to spend this much time talking about how he conquered each place, but I tell you this because this is a determined man. Okay, this is determined. And he's taking out the most impressive wall. And Tyre was like the Bruce Lee and the Chuck Norris of the ancient world. And so when he took them, pretty much everybody along the Mediterranean, all the way to Egypt, just threw up the white flag and said, we're not going against you. So from this point on, he just started moving all the way down. And there was no resistance and it wouldn't, he wouldn't meet any resistance until he conquered everybody and then moved back up to the north and moved to Babylon. And in Babylon, he would have his final face-off in Babylon, the capital of Babylon Empire, and then later Susa, which is the capital of the Persian Empire. Those would be his final face-offs with the Persian king Darius. And once he did that, it would all collapse. So he moved down. And when he moved into <clears throat> Egypt, Egypt actually welcomed him with open arms because Egypt didn't like the fact that they were being ruled by the Persians. And they thought, here comes our great savior. Little did they know, the Greeks do not respect any other culture in any kind of way. And the Egyptians, as you can tell, were pretty proud of their, their culture. Their culture is considered one of the richest, most fascinating cultures in, by all archaeologists and scholars. And so they did not know that he was going to pretty much See, the Persians just oppressed them and taxed them, and they didn't like that. The Greeks are going to come in and seek, cease to actually erase their culture. And I think most people would rather be oppressed and taxed than to actually have your identity and your culture completely erased. And so this is what they did not realize was coming. So in 332, he had conquered Tyre, and in the same year he had conquered Judah, and he had moved down into Egypt. So basically, in two years, he had conquered all the Middle East, pretty much, um, except for parts of the Tigris and Euphrates River. But those would fall pretty easily when he got there. He also, when he, when he went into the northern part of Antioch, or sorry, the northern part of Syria, like right there where the top of the Mediterranean no longer is in the north, and it curves down and starts going south towards Israel, he conquered a city there and built a city and called it Alexandria. And then when he got to Egypt, he built a city there and called it Alexandria. And now that's the famous one with the great library that burned to the ground. And then when he went up into Babylon, he built a city and called it Alexandria. And then when he started moving across what we know as modern-day Russia and going into China, he built several cities and called it Alexandria. And so there's all these cities littered across his empire that's basically named after himself. So, narcissistic? I don't know. He actually was, though. Now, in the same year, two years after he had left home, he began to move against Mesopotamia, conquering Babylon and Susa, the capital of the Persian Empire. Darius III, who is now the new king on the block, so to speak, Darius I was the one who first started attacking um, um, Greece two centuries ago. Darius III is now the king, and he continued to flee eastward until he was assassinated by his satrap Bessus. So his own satrap, his own governor, basically, assassinated while he was on the run, hoping to basically win Alexander's favor. In 331 BC, Alexander III defeated Bessus 
and so brought an end to the Persian Empire. Now, this is impressive. No one had conquered. See, when Assyria conquered the world, it took them years, decades to conquer the world. It took the Babylonians many years to conquer the, the Assyrians, and mostly because the Assyrians were falling apart. Persia is the same way. But Alexander the Great basically conquered them in about three years. The, entire, the, the biggest, largest empire the world had ever seen, and no other empire has got anywhere close to the Persian Empire in size. Alexander the Great kind of did, but he didn't hold it for more than a couple of years, so that doesn't really technically count. He conquered them in under three years. And so this brings an end to the Persian Empire. He then begins to make his way to India. And he basically moves through Russia. He moves through China. Of course, they weren't that at that time. Well, Russia wasn't at that time. Um, he moves through them, and he's pretty much unstoppable. It only takes him, by 326 BC, he's at India. Now, you guys know how big Russia and China are put together. In five years, he's conquered all of them. And that's impressive. Now, remember, he hasn't been home. He left home in 334 B.C., and he's now in India by 326 B.C. So about eight years, he has not been home once. Okay, this, this is longer than our soldiers during World War I and World War II. And there is no communication. There is no airplanes and buses and that kind of stuff. They've been walking. They walked from Greece all the way to India. And they walked and they fought and they walked and they fought and they walked and they fought. And so he was impressive. Now, one of the things that made him successful was not only his military strategy, but his, also his ability to surprise people. You can travel about 25 miles a day, you know, given like how long you can walk, set up camp, eating breakfast, lunch and dinner and that kind of stuff. And usually what would happen is you would walk about 25 miles a day with an army and you would then probably, if you got there close to nighttime, you would set up camp and you would spend the night so that you could be refreshed and not fight a battle in the middle of the night. And you would wake up in the morning and the two kings would kind of line up with their armies. You've seen this in movies. They get lined up and all that kind of stuff and they're ready to attack each other. So you would have send scouts out. And the scouts know about how far they're away. So you're like in the movies, they're like, well, they're about three days away. And they're like, how do they know that? So, well, they know that because on average, you can do about 25 miles a day. And so they know about how many miles there are between them and them. And they kind of estimate. And so they anticipate that. But Alexander the Great would take his army and he marched them like from morning into the night. And he would do way more than 25 miles a day with very little rest. And if he showed up somewhere at like 9 o'clock at night, he would begin to attack them right then and there. And so it was almost like this blitzkrieg kind of a thing. Like he came way faster than what people realized. And he was fought his men without any rest right in the battle. And they were still successful. And so this created lots of fear. And, and it was hard to communicate that to the next people. Hey, he comes a lot faster than what you think. Because remember, there is no communication. They're going to have to escape and they're going to have to outrun him on their horses to tell people and that kind of stuff. So this is one of his successes. And so he gets to India and he crosses the Indus River. Now, the Indus River is what begins to take you out of China into India. That's kind of their most northern border. And he became, still became unstoppable all the way to the Genghis, Genghis, um, Genghis River. He went on, and the, it was there in India that his men began to revolt against him. 
One of the only reasons he probably didn't conquer India was his men were exhausted and tired. So at this point, <clears throat> India was becoming more and more difficult than anything they had conquered before. One, you have the Himalaya Mountains. Um, India's culture is drastically different than anything they've ever seen before. And India had elephants. Now, it wasn't the first time they'd ever faced elephants, but they had never faced elephants to this degree and to this magnitude. And elephants are vicious. Now, I know a lot of times when I was growing up, just in the history and that kind of stuff, I was like, elephants? I don't think of elephants being fearsome. Like, as a kid and a teenager and a high school kid, I was like, why would you be afraid of elephants? Just, like, kill it with a spear or something. Like, they're slow and that kind of stuff. Well, it turns out elephants actually are very vicious, more than like a bull, when, because they, when they're, they're big and they can actually run pretty fast and they'll stampede you. And then at the same time, too, you can put all these archers on top of an elephant and they would tie spikes to the elephant's trunk and swing them. And then it wasn't until Lord of the Rings, the movie, came out that you got a really good idea of like how fighting an elephant would really go for you. Now, granted, the elephants are a little bigger in that movie than real life, but... At the same time, it was like, wow, this thing is vicious. And so that became a better picture. If you remember the end of the Lord of the Rings trilogy, there's this great battle with elephants. And it's probably the only thing that we have today where you can actually see elephants fighting. And, I, and it's based on historical accounts of this kind of stuff. India had way more people than they had ever had. Their armies were bigger. They were, at this time, they were ready for Alexander the Great in a way that a lot of people hadn't been. They were going against elephants, the terrain. It had been over eight years since they had been home. They had not seen their wife or their kids. They wanted to go back home. They were exhausted and tired. They would, like, walk and fight and walk and fight for eight years. It's kind of like, and they were just, they were just done. And they were just like, we want to go back. Now Alexander was like, no, no, let's conquer more for the glory of Greece. Okay, And they're like, no, we want to go back. And so they begin to revolt. And you try to give this, like, you know in the movies, like if you watch Braveheart, and they want to give up, and they give this inspiring speech, and everybody's like, oh! Well, he gives that inspiring speech, and they're like, no, we want to go back home. And at that point, he gave in. And he said, okay. So they started moving back home. And as they began to make home, he got sick. And we don't know exactly what he got sick of. Some scholars believe that it's sexually transmitted diseases, some think it might be like malaria that he got from like modern day Turkey because that was a malaria infested area. Paul got maybe got malaria when he was on mission trips there. We know Mark who traveled with him did. So it could have been there or it could have just been some, he could have been poisoned. Many scholars believe that he was poisoned by his own people. And so they begin sick. And as he makes it back to Susa and the Persian capital, he gets so deathly sick that he's pretty much on his deathbed. And that's pretty much where he's going to die. In 323 BC, Alexander the died. It had been a long time since he was home. He never really got to see his empire actually rule over it. So this impressive man, and I mean that in a accomplishment sense, not in a I respect his character, this impressive man never actually ruled over the empire that he had built. And that's very unusual considering the empires that we've seen. And you can see the map that he pretty much covered a lot of land. Pretty much the same amount of land that the Persian Empire had, in addition to Macedonia and Greece also being on there. The difference is that this would be lost within just a couple of years. Much of this would be lost because his generals wouldn't be able to keep it together. Now, he had no clear heir. 
He had no real clear heir. He had fathered a lot of kids along the way um, and different women that he slept with. He encouraged all of his men to sleep with noble women in every single country to, to basically turn their genealogy into Greek. He actually tried to breed the other cultures out of people's lines. And so that was something that he encouraged, and he did the same thing. He was bisexual. He, seems, he had a lover who was a younger man than himself, and he seems to be more in the homosexual reign and just kind of slept with women for the sake of having kids. There was no real clear heir that he had. He had named one of his kids heir, but he was kind of really young. None of the generals respect him in any kind of way. And there's a story where his generals go in, they're like, who should succeed you? And they come out saying that he said the stronger one kind of an idea, like the, the idea of whoever can take it is the successor. And the problem is that's based on their word. If you're dying in your deathbed and whispering things and all these generals are in there, they're going to say whatever they want to say that you said. 